welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. I want to thank you all for listening. I appreciate it so much. Um, I say this all the time, but I never thought that this many people would listen to me ever. I thought maybe I'd make two, three episodes. Maybe my mom and dad might listen and that'd be it. But um, to have this many people from all over the world listen is absolutely amazing. And I absolutely love and appreciate it. And if you can go on whatever platform that you're listening to us on and review us, um, if it's one that uses five stars, if you give us five stars, that gets us into those recommended lists. And we really, really need that. Um, We really would appreciate it if you want to stop by our Patreon or Venmo page and drop us a few dimes. We would really appreciate that too. Anything you can do, information will be down below. And I hope that you guys are staying safe um, out there with your family and loved ones. Now, um, this week we're going to do the first part of our series on the Black Panthers. Now, this is a continuation of the counterculture series um i thought this would only be two parts but it's going to end up being three parts with the first part being about the history um how the party came to be its founding the works that they were trying to do what their goals were um, what they wanted for the party um, things of that nature the second part will be more about their role in the civil rights movement um who was involved in the party during that time frame um the fact that COINTELPRO was trying to infiltrate them um if you listen to uh the first three parts of the counterculture series then you will know that COINTELPRO which was an FBI counterintelligence program um that was started by J. Edgar Hoover tried to infiltrate the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and they did infiltrate the Weather Underground, which is one of the first domestic terror organizations in the United States. And um, at the time of the counterculture movement, they had deemed pretty much all student organizations as radical um, movements and some as domestic terror organizations. And some rightfully were, as the Weather Underground was definitely a domestic terror organization, but not all student movements were terror organizations or were involved in violence and violent tactics. So um, that will be the second part. And that will um, end with COINTELPRO's involvement, um, driving a rift into the movement and causing it to splinter. And half of the movement um, wanting to take up more violent tactics and half of it not. It also is going to culminate in the death of one of the members of the movement and that will bring us to the second part which will talk about the downfall of the party we'll talk about the splintering of the party the infighting of the party um many members were killed by police officers and then you had many members who did have to flee the country um whether it was because of the fbi um putting wanted notices out for them. Many of them were on the top 10 most wanted list. Um, Or, and as part of that, uh, many of them did flee to Cuba and other countries. Um, So as the party changed and started to fall apart, many of the members did flee the country, um, partly in due to the fact that they were wanted by the government. And that 
and the third part will be about the downfall and the disintegration of the party and how the party splintered into other movements and the people from the party who did go on to great and long careers and they are still out there and politically active. So the Black Panther Party was founded by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. They met in the early 60s while at Merritt Junior College in West Oakland. The civil rights movement had ignited Black America. Seal and Newton were no different. Both were active in Black politics before they came together to form the Panthers. Seal was part of the Revolutionary Action Movement, and both Seal and Newton became involved in a college-based group called the Soul Students Advisory Committee. I love these names. These experiences were critical in the formation of the ideology of the Panthers as it led them to rejecting the philosophy of what they called cultural nationalist. In the book Seize the Time, Bobby Seale explains cultural nationalists and Black Panthers are in conflict in many areas. Basically, cultural nationalism sees the white man as the oppressor and makes no distinction between racist whites and non-racist whites as Panthers do. The cultural nationalists say that a black man cannot be the enemy of the black people, while the Panthers believe that black capitalists are the exploiters and the oppressors. Although the Black Panther Party believes in black nationalism and black culture, it does not believe that either will lead the black liberation or overthrow of the capitalist system and are therefore ineffective. Cultural nationalism was a powerful current in the black movement and one which influenced Malcolm X in his early years as a member of the Nation of Islam. The nationalists rejected the integrationist approach and believed in separatists. They believed that blacks and whites should remain separate. Informing the Panthers, Seal and Newton made a clean break with both integrationists and separatists. They agreed instead that economic and political roots of racism were in the exploitative capitalist system and that the black struggle must be a revolutionary movement to overthrow the entire power structure in order to achieve liberation for black people. Under pressure from the mass civil rights struggle, the government had made certain concessions, promoting black officials, mayors, and congressmen but no lasting improvement to the daily lives of most black people had taken place. In fact, while segregation laws had been broken down, the level of poverty had actually increased. Black unemployment was higher in 1966 after more than a decade of struggle than in 1954. 32% of black people were living below the poverty line in 1966. 71% of poor living in the metropolitan areas were black. By 1968, two-thirds of the black population lived in ghettos. The Panthers realized that the movement needed to progress beyond the battles for desegregation and to address the fundamental economic problems that people faced in their daily lives. They were the first independent black organization to have a clear analysis of the types of society we lived in, one in which small classes hold all the economic and political power and use it to exploit the majority. Bobby Seale stated, we do not fight racism with racism. We fight racism with solidarity. We do not fight exploitative capitalism with black capitalism. We fight capitalism with basic socialism. And we do not fight imperialism with more imperialism. We fight imperialism with totalitarian internationalism. 
This was the guiding philosophy of the Black Panthers, but critical to their development was the knowledge that it was not enough to have the right theories, that this must be translated into a concrete set of demands that people can relate to in a clear course of action to achieve these demands. And so the first task of Seal and Newton was to sit down and write a program for the Panthers. And in October 1966, they came up with the Black Panther Party platform and program called What We Want and What We Believe. First, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our Black community. We believe that Black people will not be free until we are able to determine our own destiny. Two, we want full employment for our people. We believe that the federal government is responsible and obligated to give every man employment or a guaranteed income. We believe that if the white American businessmen will not give full employment, then the means of production should be taken from the businessmen and placed within the community so that the people of the community can organize and employ all of its own people and give a high standard of living. Three. We want an end to the robbery by the white man of our black communities. We believe that this racist government has robbed us and now we are demanding the overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. 40 acres and two mules was promised 100 years ago as restitution for slave labor and mass murder of black people. We will accept the payment in currency which will be distributed to our many communities. The Germans murdered 6 million Jews. The American racist has taken part in the slaughter of over 50 million black people. Therefore, we feel this is a modest demand. Four, we want decent housing, fit for the shelter of human beings. We believe that if white landlords will not give decent housing to the black community, then the housing and the land should be made into cooperatives so that our community with government aid can build and make decent housing for its own people. Five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in present day society. We believe in an educational system that will give our people a knowledge of self. If a man does not have a knowledge of himself and his position in society and the world, then he has little chance to relate to anything else. Six, we want all black men to be, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, I really shouldn't. We want all black men to be exempt from military service. We believe that black people should not be forced to fight in the military service to defend a racist government that does not protect us. We will not fight and kill other people of color in the world who, like black people, are being victimized by the white racist government of America. We will protect ourselves from the force and violence of racist police and racist military by whatever means necessary. The only reason I started to laugh is because in the grand scheme of things now, most people don't see a white American or a black American. They just see a whole bunch of dumb Americans. <laughs> who are entitled and selfish and that's really all they see so they're not going to be like oh you're one of the black ones i'm not gonna do anything to you because you're oppressed they yeah so they wouldn't care either way we're just stupid americans <laughs>
either way. Seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and the murder of black people. And we still want that. We believe we can end police brutality in our black community by organizing black self-defense groups that are dedicated to defending our black community from racist police oppression and brutality. The second amendment to the Constitution of the United States gives a right to bear arms. We therefore believe that all black people should arm themselves for self-defense. We want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. That's eight. We believe that all black people should be released from the many jails and prisons because they have not received a fair and impartial trial. Eight is touchy because in certain places, absolutely 100%, they probably did not get a fair trial. But that doesn't mean that necessarily they should get a f not have been arrested to begin with. So does that mean that all people who are black should not have to go to jail? Nah, but I absolutely agree. Our system is crazy broken and there are certain places where it doesn't, it, you're not getting a fair trial, period, black or white, because the system is horribly broken in certain places. Nine, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. I 100% agree with this, and to this day, this is still an issue within our legal system. Um, it's why people get changed changes of venue quite a bit when they go on trial um, if a defendant is black and they feel that their jury isn't representative like they are in a place where they could have gotten people of color on their jury but somehow ended up with an all-white jury they can ask for a change of venue saying that you know this community isn't representative of them it's not a jury of their peers it, it is something that continues to be um, an issue. Uh, people questioning if you know they gen if they are getting a jury of their peers. If no one on the jury is Hispanic, if the defendant is Hispanic, if the defendant doesn't speak English, and no one on the jury speaks a second language. I mean, I could go on and on that. That is a question still to this day. We believe that courts should follow the United States Constitution so that black people will receive fair trials. The 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution gives a man a right to be tried by his peer group. A peer is a person from a similar economic, social, religious, geographical, environmental, historical, and racial background. To this day, the court will be forced to select a jury from the black community from which the black defendant came. We have been and are being tried by all white juries that have no understanding of the average reasoning of the black community. 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And as our major political objective, a United Nations supervised plebiscite to be held throughout the black community in which only black colonial subjects will be allowed to participate. And for the purpose of determining the will of black people as to their national destiny. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another and to assume among the powers of the earth 
the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter such principles and organizing its powers in such form as them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and, accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object envenes a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future society. Basically, that is the section of the United States Constitution that says the circumstances under which it is reasonable for you to overthrow your government. Um, it's basically saying when your government um, oversteps their bounds or suppresses its people rather than doing right by them, it's person perfectly reasonable for you to overthrow your government and install a new one so that you can secure the future of your society. Um, anyway, <laughs> moving on. As soon as the program was written, they printed a thousand copies and went out into the streets to distribute them. Seal and Newton and their first member, Bobby Hutton, put their month's paycheck together to rent an old shop from to use as a base for their operations. They painted up a sign saying Black Panther Party for Self-Defense on January 1st, 1967, the office opened. Weekly meetings and political education classes were held to spread the word, and so the first chapter of the Panthers was formed. The party began to grow not only because an organization of that, of that character with a clearly worked out program was needed at the time, but because they based themselves in the community, working with the people for the people. They had an office, they had a 10-point platform and a program, and now was the time to put that program into action. The Panthers decided to take up their constitutional right to carry arms and to implement Malcolm X's philosophy of self-defense by patrolling the police. They did this at a time when severe police brutality was common. The police would beat down and kill blacks at random. They would even recruit police from the racist South to come and work with them in the northern ghettos. On one occasion, while on patrol, they witnessed an officer stop and search a young boy. The Panthers got out of their car and went over to the scene and stood, watching with their guns on full display. Angrily, the police began to question them and tried to intimidate them with threats of arrest. But Huey Newton had studied the law intimately and could quote every law and ruling to relevant to their situation. Huey stood there with a law book in one hand and a gun in the other and told the pigs 
about the constitutional right to carry a weapon as long as it was not concealed. He told them about the law and said that every citizen had a right to observe a police officer carry out his duty as long as they stood a reasonable distance away. And he told them about the Supreme Court ruling which defined what that distance was. A crowd gathered and watched the entire scene in amazement. The Panthers made it clear that they were not looking for a shootout and that they would only use their guns in self-defense. They took the opportunity to distribute copies of the 10-point program and to inform people of their ideology and invite them to their political meetings. Meanwhile, the flustered and nervous cops took the opportunity to get the hell out. The gun had a huge psychological effect, both on the black community and the police. For the police, it reversed the fear, so they enjoyed creating in others. But for the black community, it fired their imagination. People felt empowered by seeing black brothers and sisters protecting their interests. There were two sides to the carrying of the gun, though. Most people saw it as a positive move, but others were put off by the militaristic image. On the other side, many brothers in particular came to the Panther office purely for guns the black uniform, and the image. When this happened, the Panthers would simply explain that the struggle was about a whole lot more, and it was not just about picking up a gun. It was about educating yourself and others about organizing and community programs, selling the newspaper, and serving your people. At the time, they would get the brother to work in the nursery, maybe looking after children, while other members went out and going on party business. In this way, they tried to make sure that people understood the Panther ideology and they got a balanced view of what it was all about. Now, there were several community programs that were a key part of the Panther strategy. Firstly, they demonstrated that politics were relevant to people and feeding hungry children, giving out food and clothing and medical care showed that the Panthers related to people's needs. Secondly, it showed that what could be achieved if you were organized. The programs achieved a great deal with very limited resources, but it also raised in people's minds how much more could be achieved if they had resources available to the government and business corporations. Some people have criticized the community programs, saying it's not revolutionary, but Bobby Seal answers this very, very clearly. A lot of people misunderstand the politics of these programs. Some people have a tendency to call them reform programs. They're not reform programs. They're actually revolutionary community programs. A revolutionary program is on set forth by revolutionaries, by those who want change in the existing system for a better system. A reform program is set up by the existing exploitative system as an appeasing handout to fool the people and keep them quiet. Examples of these programs are poverty programs, youth work programs, and things like that. The first program the Panthers organized was the Free Breakfast for Children program. Leslie Johnson explains how this led her to get involved with the Panthers. One of the things that I could immediately respect and admire the party for was its breakfast for school children program. You know, my parents were both workers and my father was a shipper and my mother, she was cleaning clothes and rubbing spots and things. And there were times when I was growing up that a week's oatmeal or whatever would run out and I went hungry. So I could really appreciate what the party was doing. 
The Panthers would go out and get donations of food from local businessmen. Any chain of stores that refused, even a small donation would be boycotted. Leaflets would be produced and distributed in the community exposing the business. The programs usually took place in a church hall. Party members would have to work very hard starting work at 6 a.m. every day. They would prepare breakfast, serve children, they would usually sing with them, and then when the children left, they'd have to clear the place and set up and collect provisions for the next day. Now, the success of the Panthers' political activities and community programs and their huge growth and influence and with their membership bursts brought them under fire from the American state. The FBI intensified counterintelligence, or COINTELPRO, against them. Nearly every office in the country was burnt out. During one raid in the spring of 1968, Bobby Hutton, the party's, one of the party's first members, came out with his hands out, and the police shot him in the head and killed him. The attacks became even more vicious in 1969. On December 4th at 1am, the police burst into Fred Hampton's apartment and opened fire in a bedroom where he lay sleeping with his pregnant girlfriend. Another panther called out that a pregnant woman was in the room and the police paused their firing. Deborah Johnson remembers, One of the policemen grabbed my robe and threw it down and said, What do you know? We have a woman here. Another man grabbed me by my head and shoved me into the kitchen. I heard a voice from another part of the apartment saying, He's barely alive or he'll barely make it. Then I heard more shots. A sister screamed from the front. Then shooting stopped and I heard someone say, He's good as dead now. In 1969 alone, 25 Panther members were killed, but the FBI's operation went further. Aside from the constant arrests of Panther members, which disrupted the work of the organization and drained them financially, the FBI infiltrated the party and manufactured rivalries and disputes between the members. Today, some would explain the demise of the Panthers as due to successful operations by the FBI. Undoubtedly, this placed an enormous strain on the organization but there are many countries in the world where political opposition forces even greater repression from the state. Without underestimating the difficulties, they cannot entirely account for the fall of the Panthers. There are a number of factors which contributed. The role of women within the Panthers was an area with many problems. At one point, women comprised 70% of the membership of the organization yet all the leading positions were occupied by men. This is not a petty point because it's illustrated by different roles that men and women took. It seems that many women were confined to secretarial, administrative, childcare, or other traditional roles, while men were encouraged to develop political ideas, speaking, and leadership abilities. Also, some of the brothers complained that they were not taking directions from a woman. At other times, it was found that accusations of being counter-revolutionary were spread about women just because she didn't want to sleep with people. But there were still very revolutionary black women within the Black Panthers. Uh, women who are still considered some of the greatest political minds, one of which was Kathleen Cleaver. She married the Minister of Information for the Black Panther Party, Eldridge Cleaver. Kathleen Cleaver became the Communications Secretary and first woman of the party's decision-making cabinet. She was married to Eldridge for 20 years before they got a divorce, and she went and got her law degree from Yale Law School. Kathleen is now a senior lecturer at Emory University Law School. 
And then we have Frederica Newton. Frederica joined the Black Panther Party as a teen in 1969. She met Huey Newton in 1970 and married him in 1981. After Huey's death, Frederica established the Huey P. Newton Foundation where she served as president. In addition to operating a literacy and voter outreach program, the foundation holds the Black Panther Party archives. Charlotte Hill O'Neill, and affectionately known as Mama C, Charlotte O'Hill is a musician, poet, and artist. After fleeing with her husband to Africa, they set up the headquarters of the international section of the Black Panther Party and settled in Tanzania. Unlike many activists, O'Neill never fully returned to America because her husband remained a wanted man. Uh, she visits and lectures at colleges and universities. Elaine Brown. Long before Elaine Brown sought the Green Party presidential nomination in 2008, she was a chairwoman of the Black Panther Party from 74 to 77. But according to Brown, her title was meaningless. A woman in the Black Panther Party was considered at best irrelevant. A woman asserting herself was a pariah. If a black woman assumed a role of leadership, she was said to be eroding black manhood, to be hindering the progress of the black race. Brown left the party when she could no longer tolerate the sexism and the patriarchy. She founded the National Alliance for Radical Prison Reform and works to help prisoners find housing after they are released. Rosemary Mealy. Dr. Mealy got involved in the Black Panther Party after the murder of Fred Hampton in 1969. She's the author of Fidel and Malcolm X, Memoirs of a Meeting, and currently is an adjunct assistant professor at City College of New York. Asada Shakur, Black Panther activist Asada Shakur, was pulled over by the New Jersey police, shot twice, and then charged with the murder of a police officer in 1973. She spent six and a half years in prison before escaping and fleeing to Cuba in 1984. She was added to the FBI's top 10 most wanted terrorist list in 2013. And she has an absolutely amazing biography you should read. Erica Huggins, activist and political prisoner, spent 14 years in the Black Panther Party. Eight of those years were spent as the director of the Oakland Community School. She became the first woman and black person appointed to the Alameda County Board of Education. She's now a facilitator with worldtrust.org and leads a dialogue about race and inequality. Barbara Easley Cox. Barbara was a student at San Francisco State College before she joined the Black Panther Party. Initially frightened, she joined after meeting Eldridge and Kathleen Cleaver. Barbara was a member from 7074 and she worked at the offices in Oakland, Philadelphia, New York, and Africa. She retired from social work in 2003, but she's still an advocate for literacy programs. Afini Shakur, and she is that Shakur, mother of Tupac. Afini was part of the infamous Panther 21, charged with the conspiracy to bomb New York landmarks. Shakur represented herself at trial and was acquitted a month before Tupac was born. After her son's death in 1996, she helmed his estate until her death in May 2016. So many very, and then on top of that, you also have Angela Davis. She has gone on to be a luminary. She was also part of the 21, uh, the, um, and she has gone on to be a great lecturer 
and civil rights activists as, as well as a women's rights activist. So many very luminary women have come out of the Panthers. So it is really maddening that women weren't really given uh, much of a place within the organization. At that point in time, there were several radical black workers groups, such as the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, named after the car plant in Detroit, and the Eldrin Avenue Revolutionary Union Movement. They organized large members of revolutionary black workers. All they, though they had some black caucuses within the trade unions, the Panthers did not sufficiently develop this aspect of work. It was of particular importance because black working class is critical in the struggle for black liberation. The Panthers were one of the few groups who understood the whole basis of American society had to be transformed. It was this understanding that gave them the revolutionary outlook, but this alone guaranteed nothing. The clarity of ideas which enables the development of a coherent and effective strategy is essential in accomplishing the task of overthrowing capitalism. We would argue that there are many confused ideas in the Black Panther Party. Some believe they could develop a basis of struggle conducted by a small armed minority. But they didn't have the strategy for building a mass organization which could be sustained over a longer period. Huey Newton said in Revolutionary Suicide, but we soon discovered that weapons and uniforms set us apart from the community. We were looked upon as a hawk military group acting outside the community's fabric and too radical to be part of it. Perhaps some of our tactics at the time were extreme. Perhaps we placed too much emphasis on military action. This was particularly important as they had reached their high point at the time of the ebbing of huge civil rights movement. Had the organization been developed with a more long-term perspective, then the Black Panthers would have been in a position to put themselves at the head of a mass resurgence of radicalism amongst the Black population or even in wider American society. This above all demonstrates the need for a clear forward view of how events will unfold in society. That is why a careful and disciplined study of events is an important aspect of shaping the outlook of any revolutionary organization. So this is where we're going to stop. We're going to stop where they um, have started to kind of splinter. In the next episode, we're going to look in to their movements within the civil rights movements, the effects they've had. We'll go deeper into the programs they created, um, the impact um, that COINTELPRO had. Um, we will talk about Bobby Hutton, the other deaths that happened, and we will um, from there move on to the disintegration of the property and the party and the effect that COINTELPRO was able to have. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.